Hello and welcome to everyone joining us over Zoom uh, and on Facebook Live. My name is Shubhanga Pandey. Uh, I'm the chief editor at Himal South Asian, currently based in Colombo. Um, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all today here for the first edition of South Asian Conversation. Um, so this is a new series of online discussion we've started today. Um, the hope is to have um, interesting and important voices from around South Asia and to make this you know, a running platform for that kind of conversation. Um, so the subject for today is uh, women politicians in South Asia. Um, the idea for the panel was partly triggered by the election of Kamala Harris as the first woman vice president uh, of the United States um, and the kind of discussions that generated. Um, and of course, South Asia has a longer history of women in, in top political positions. Um, but we also wanted to kind of critically revisit um, and think about you know, the limits of that history. So, um, and also I think think about the you know, ch uh, challenges faced by women politicians today. Um, perhaps also some interesting new spaces um, and opportunities. So uh, we have a fantastic panel of speakers from different cities across South Asia. Um, and the discussion will be moderated by Lakshmi Murthy, um, who's a contributing editor at Himal South Asian um, and is a writer and editor based in Bengaluru. Um, just before I hand it over to Lakshmi, I'll just do a small plug-in for Himal's membership. So uh, we, uh, so you know, you can support Himal's independent, non-nationalist journalism by becoming a member now. Uh, we're no longer a print publication as we were a few years back. We're a digital-only publication. Um, you can go to himalmag.com and be a member. And as one of the perks, you'll get a free copy uh, of our famous right side up map delivered to your home. Um, uh, despite current COVID crisis, so we'll 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 try to get that there. So please, uh, after the event, go ahead and uh, and feel free to be members. Uh, over to you, Lakshman. Uh, thanks so much, Shubanga, and I'm really delighted to be moderating this conversation uh, with some old friends and hopefully some new. And it's quite amazing that a pretty uh, terrible year that's gone by has allowed us to see the possibilities of cross-border conversations so much more easily. I mean, we just jump onto Zoom and there we are. Uh, whereas most of us uh, have visa issues getting across to each other. It's really, uh, I mean, it's limiting, but it's still fantastic. So <laughs> welcome everyone and uh, welcome particularly to the speakers. I'll just introduce them uh, one by one. You probably know most of them already, though. Uh, we have Hamida Hussain, who's a human rights uh, activist and a scholar. She's based in Dhaka. She's a founding member of the Aino Salish Kendra, a legal aid and human rights organization. And she's, uh, you know, the history of Bangladesh has literally unfolded under her nose. And uh, we hope to get those insights from Hamida very soon. So thank you, Hamida, for joining us. Uh, we have with us Neelam Hussain, who's based in Lahore. Uh, she's an academic, a translator, and an activist. She's a founding member and executive director of Simorg Women's Resource and Publication Center. And she's an active member of the Women's Action Forum, uh, which has been active for many, many decades and has also seen history unfolding quite literally. We also have with us Manushi Yami Bhatrai. She's based in Kathmandu. She's a political activist, organizer, and an academic. She's a central committee member of Janata Samajwadi Party, and she also teaches gender studies 
uh, in a college in Kathmandu affiliated to the Tribhuvan University. Uh, we also have Ambika Satkunanathan. She's a lawyer, a human rights advocate, and former commissioner on the Human Rights Commission of Sri Lanka. Uh, she's based in Colombo. Uh, welcome, Ambika. Welcome, all of you. And uh, as Shubanga has already uh, said, it was, uh, you know, Kamala Harris uh, literally sort of triggering this conversation. And we began to think about does women in politics mean uh, women from dynasties, which is quite typically what has uh, been the notion of women in politics in South Asia. And we also wanted to look at does dynasty alone explain the presence of these few women who've made it to the top? Uh, what else are the factors in electoral politics which takes these women there? And how do we also view women in uh, provincial or regional parties, which, for example, in India, we have prominent leaders from regional parties, whether it's Mayavati or Jalalita or Mamata Banerjee. We have them, uh, you know, making a difference at a regional level and also what, quote unquote, are called kingmakers uh, when coalition politics was um, at a high in India. So these are some of the questions we want to raise uh, across the board for South Asia as a region, but also each of you, each of the speakers comes from a very specific location, which they will uh, bring in in a second round. So we'll just break up the conversation into two rounds of questions. And uh, the first round uh, is about, uh, you know, when women have been elected to high office, does dynasty alone uh, explain their presence there. And how do we view, as I said, women in regional or provincial uh, politics? And the third question, has South Asia's women leaders brought alternative styles of functioning? Do they bring a new kind of politics uh, to the fore? Uh, so Hamida, since you've been able to join us and you were going to talk about how, uh, you know, women's participation in nationalist politics, uh, you know, sort of uh, was determined by the way in which Bangladesh itself came into being. So would you like to go first, Hamida? So in this first round, uh, we can each, uh, each of the speakers can speak about six to eight minutes, and then we take a second round. So Thank Hamida, you, Lakshmi. Yeah. Thank you, Lakshmi. Yes, I was going to talk not, not so much about um, what you wanted us to talk about, dynastic politics, that's always there, whether it's Washington, D.C. and Hillary Clinton or anybody else. Uh, but I wanted to say that women's uh, role in politics, and I want to look at it from the perspective of the women's movements in all our countries, in fact. In Bangladesh, for instance, women for I don't know how long have been very involved in the resistance movements, resistance to uh, um, the nationalist movement, which grew out of the language movement and the students' movement of 69 and so on, and then leading up to the war in 71. And in all these cases, in fact, even before you find, um, even when Bangladesh was part of Pakistan, there were women like um, Begum Shamshana Mahmood who made her presence um, on, the, on the Rashid Commission, Justice Rashid Commission on the Family Laws Ordinance. And subsequently as well, so women then were so active in, the, in their own, uh, not only the nationalist movement, but as part of the nationalist movement, they were echoing their demands, they were raising issues that were particular to, to women. And 
as a result of that, I think partly as a result, not, not entirely because of that, we had in the constitution of uh, 1972, we had uh, put in a, a particular Article 28, which talks about free, uh, equality, gender equality, uh, equality between men and women. And from there on, of course, women have continued to um, uh, make their demands as to what they meant by, what women have meant by equality, which is not merely on the surface of having a few women in parliament. So then what we see here, women's role in political parties or in parliament, that women are coming in from two different angles. One is the, particularly the progressive women who have been very active, uh, say in the language movement, for instance, there was Dr. Um, Sufia Ahmad who was active at that time. Then in 1969, with the student movement, there were people like Malika Begum and Aisha Khanum who were literally on the streets demonstrating and so on. And they were also part of the students' movement. And then how the students, women, student leaders came together which, uh, with the community leadership, such as Begum Sufia Kamal, and formed the Mohila Purishad. So then Mohila Purishad became one of the biggest, it continues to be actually one of the biggest uh, parties, uh, women's groups in, in Bangladesh. And what we see in terms of their political participation is, I'm not looking at whether a particular leader is selected into parliament, that may happen, but I'm also interested in how Organizations like uh, Mohila Parishad, then later on, smaller organizations that became like NGOs after 1975, how they are uh, recording their um, demands and uh, voicing their position in, in the state, and how they're looking at the state or trying to make the state intervene in such a way as to bring about social and political change. It doesn't always happen, but I think that I think one needs to look at it from that perspective. And then, um, broadly speaking, when you have 1975 in the Mexico Conference and the Women's Conference, women then from Bangladesh are also attending these conferences, and they're becoming there are more and more sort of um, regional interactions taking place between uh, Indian, Pakistani, Sri Lanka, you know, South Asian. Well, we are talking about what what are the kind of situation that we face in our own countries and how we can work together. So I think then you have um, the UN conference also acting as an incentive to the women's movement. As a result, I think the women's movement in Bangladesh has taken very many forward steps, not that they've won all their rounds, but certainly in terms of, um, they have particularly, I think, stressed legal, uh, legal reform of various kinds, whether it's relating to Family matters. Again, I would say that they haven't gone all the way. We still have some sort of restrictions, uh, but moving along that, and some of them then, as a result of their involvement in the nationalist movement or the women's movement, they have also come in and uh, into the parliament. Now, the one thing that uh, the women had wanted was to be elected directly, but instead, what conditions that we have in our country is that women. Uh, there is a reservation of seats for women. I think it is now about 30 or 50, I'm not sure, out of a house of 300. But it comes to each party then deciding whom they want to select. So it's mainly party loyalists then gets selected rather than through an election. But again, the women's movement from outside the parliament, from outside the political parties, such as Mohila Pusha and the other organizations, they have been canvassing, saying, yes, 
we still need reservations. We still need to make sure that a certain number of seats where only women can contest. But we want the women to be elected directly as a result of votes by the local people and not selection by their leaders. So I think that is the situation if you look at whether it is dynastic, some of it is dynastic, some of it is not. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amida. This is really interesting and we'll come back to it in terms of, you know, direct elections and parties are selecting party loyalists because we've seen also that the winnability factor doesn't seem to hold. You know, all evidence shows that women have really high winnability, but they may not really be chosen. So, uh, yeah, so moving on, uh, Neelam, would you like to uh, take the first round of questions to address that? Yes, uh, I think uh, a lot of what Hamidas has said covers definitely Pakistan and probably the rest of South Asia also in terms of uh, the interlinkages between the women's movements, women in parliament, uh, the uh, impact of U UN instruments and international fora, which have uh, built links across South Asia among women, and uh, I think enriched our movements and also somewhere fed into what should be the peace process, but which keeps on getting derailed. So I'll look at it from look at two points, uh, aspects. One, uh, the seeming conundrum, which as you in the beginning said that uh, South Asia has a long history of women in positions of high power and of women holding very iconic positions on the one hand. And yet this is their, their status or the way that their place in the public imagination is not reflected in on the condition of women in general. There is a cleavage, and it seems to be a strange kind of uh, contradiction. Uh, I want to focus on uh, that aspect, merely emphasizing that it is a seeming conundrum. The women who come in on a dynastic basis or as icons from well-placed uh, political families to begin with uh, are not going, not marking a point of departure from normal patriarchal practice. They are there, they come in as the daughters, Benazir, Indra Gandhi, Asina Wajid. Uh, they come in as the daughters. They are surrogates for the men they are representing and to whom they owe their identity. Whether, where, that the fact that they forge positions of their own place later is another matter. But they come as part of the patriarchal patrilineal continuum. continuum. And then they are set apart as signifiers of, uh, uh, of, of, of their families, of uh, their class, of their caste, and separated from the generality of women. So, their status is is not reflected on the or the honor in which they are held or the respect with which they are looked at or admiration is not has no very little fallout on the generality of women who continue to suffer all forms of abuse sexual violence gender based violence so on and so forth at the 
so in that position they're there as representatives of their class their caste their family lineage if they happen to set up dynasties dynasties as as indra gandhi has done or benazir uh, but uh, at another level they continue also to partake of the disadvantages of being women so there's a cleavage even within that iconic stature and this is reflected uh, in the fact that the expectations from them are at one level those of from all women there was a, a huge uh, pressure on benazir to get married uh, because that was the done thing uh, also to ensure somewhere her respectability and i remember one of the slogans by the jamaat e islami men at that time was i'll translate it into english it was people's party have some shame get your sister married i mean offensive in itself but less offensive than the scurrilous abuse she was subjected to from the opposition which was sexual which was debasing which was frankly unprintable the mildest that i can remember is of and this is inside the national assembly when she walked in she was wearing a yellow shirt and there were uh, sniggers of taxi taxi by parliament parliamentarians so they have the iconic status but they are not saved from the kind of abuse that the ordinary woman is vulnerable to that is one point i want to make the other was that uh, what is uh, different about women in parliament or that the place they have created for themselves is that the strong links and connections between them and the women's movement particularly post 2000 uh, prior to that women were always part of uh, part of parliament but they had they were there on reserved seats and the quota was very very small ranging from i think in the first constituent assembly there were only two women and never more than i mean the quota was never more than 10 it was under pressure from the women's movement and again the fact that pakistan was a signatory to un conventions like cedo that uh, ironically under the military government of musharraf the quota was raised uh, women's quota was raised to 70% in parliament and 33% at the local government which meant uh, a dramatic influx of women into parliament but uh, so this amplified their voices but also because of their connections earlier connections like nafisa uh, shah who was uh, a member of the people's party was also had been a member of women's action forum had close associations uh, similarly shanaz wazir ali similarly bushra gohar so they were coming out of a particular mindset and with a, from a particular position and that impacted on their politics despite so they had to submit to party lines most more often than not uh, the other innovation that can be associated with the women's movement with the women in parliament is the formation of women's caucuses in parliament where women came together in informal groups to work across and beyond party lines uh and this in itself uh, enabled the passage of many proactive women's laws similarly these connections with the move uh, between parliamentarians and the women's movement uh 
facilitated the passage of these laws. Many of the laws were conceived of, drafted by women in the women's movement, give, handed over to women in parliament, who then presented them to their party, tabled them. Of course, it was a long drawn out process of negotiation with much being whittled out or whittled down and taken away, but much saved. And uh, there the clash was A, with patriarchy in general, and uh, B, with the religious element, where women often ended up as the bargain encounters. You know, you don't give this to women and we'll, you know, support you in that among at the party, inter-party level. So that, I think, is, uh, you know, briefly, the impact of women in parliament, dynastic or otherwise, and also the influx of uh, party workers who have risen from the ranks, as it were, and uh, entered parliamentary politics. Uh, thanks, Neelam. That was that was really interesting interplay uh, between you know the quota system reservation and also the other push in terms of the women's movement making its presence felt, and that's something we've seen a lot of in India as well, where uh, across party lines, uh, the women's groups affiliated to political parties have tried to push the women's reservation bill with little success. You know, for over 25 years, the bill has just been hanging. And I think it is the threat almost, it, that's what it looks like, of active women in politics because of the success, in a way, of the Panchayati Raj uh, uh, amendments, the 173rd Amendment. So I think this push from without of the women's movement, that's something we see, uh, I think, in all our countries in terms of trying to influence politics as parliamentarians and also, uh, you know, pushing bills and using uh Parliament for law reform or other feminist agendas. So uh, I hope we get a chance to discuss that further. Uh, but for the first round, can we? Uh, can I ask Ambika to come in and also just give a little brief recap also about what we call dynastic politics in Sri Lanka and does it uh, mirror similarly the three other examples that we've spoken about so far? Uh, thank you, Lakshmi. And... Uh... Yes, it definitely uh, does uh, mirror what, uh, you know, um, Hamida and Neelam have spoken about uh, in that we had in Sri Lanka, you know, the first, uh, globally, the first uh, woman prime minister was from Sri Lanka. We've had a woman president, and but we haven't seen a substantive social change or even progressive laws that were brought in because they were there. And as was said, they were there because of their husbands, their fathers, their families. Um, and um, uh, what we find now is that the examples of those women are used by people to justify why we don't need quotas. So they say, we have this, so we don't need quotas. Or they say, um, you know, uh, if these women can do it. Or, and they're also used to deny that we have inequality. So even if you raise an issue, not just related to politics, but anything else related to gender discrimination, uh, you would be someone, if I did that, I would be, you know, making a big deal out of it. Or if you question casual sexism, 
right? Whether it's in politics or even in kind of normal social settings, you're a person who doesn't have a sense of humor. You are just making a mountain out of a molehill. So when you have these at our everyday level, at the everyday level, and even when we cannot challenge that, you can just imagine how much heightened that is in the sphere of national politics. Uh, and for instance, I think what we have seen is that you raised an earlier question where you asked, you know, do they have a distinctive or a different style of doing politics? Um, actually not. What we have sadly seen is that not always, but uh, most often we find that the women also become foot soldiers of patriarchy because they have to survive within that system. So they, what they do is they defend the very values that might be the system that is discriminating against them. Uh, an example is that we had in the previous regime, a woman uh, minister of justice and the women's movement at that time was lobbying for a change to the Muslim personal laws. And I think she was reluctant to take that forward. And I think that also had to do with the fact that she was a woman and you know, you're just, uh, that made her reluctant. Now we have a male uh, Muslim minister of justice who's made the announcement and he hasn't had much backlash, actually. You know, he said he's going to change it, not much backlash. And we don't know whether he'll do it. But even the reaction that that tells you a lot about how society views women and men. And we do definitely hold them to different standards here in that women, men can engage in even the most violent, indecent, illegal, unethical behavior. That would be okay. But a woman parliamentarian does the slightest thing, there is an uproar and suddenly the standards become much higher. Um, so I think in Sri Lanka, like in other parts of South Asia, we have seen dynastic politics uh, and it is very difficult for, you know, as we say, an average woman to get into politics and thereafter to survive. Uh, but the positive is that we also have had, uh, you know, parliamentary women's caucuses. And to some extent, they have been positive because the women uh, politicians have managed to work across party lines. But still, sometimes they do find it difficult to take it up because they still have to work within that very patriarchal, hierarchical internal party or internal government uh, structures. The other thing is that the women's groups have found sometimes allies within, you know, of women politicians who they then support by providing information and, you know, providing talking points, et cetera, and trying to tell them, you know, we are there behind you, we'll back you, just take this forward. And that has had, I think, uh, limited success as well. So that in a nutshell is, is what uh, we have seen in Sri Lanka. Okay, thanks Ambika. I think this is, again, it really reflects the situation all over where you talk about them being foot soldiers for patriarchy. And in fact, that used to be a compliment to Indira Gandhi saying she was the only man in her cabinet and so on, where, you know, being a man is uh, the highest uh, you can aspire to. Uh, so uh, coming to uh, Manushi uh, for this first round, uh, Manushi, uh, you know, Nepal has a very different uh, history from uh, the rest of the countries represented here in terms of you know, no, no colonial, direct colonial past. And uh, in terms of, you know, the other uh, laws or the other kind of social setups that we've inherited, Nepal is, uh, you know, certainly not amongst those. And you've had a very specific history of your own and 10 years of uh, insurgency and uh, 
you know, I'd actually like to maybe take the conversation a bit more personal since you witnessed that history yourself as a very young uh, girl. You've grown up literally in a political family. And how does that feel and how, how do you perceive dynastic politics in uh, a context where there has been an overthrow of almost everything that was considered to be uh, political or an institution in Nepal. I mean, every institution has come under scrutiny in the very, very recent uh, past. So uh, how, how do you relate to that? You need to unmute yourself, yeah. Thank you, Lakshmi. Um, well, as you said, Nepal's context is slightly different uh, considering our history and, and our contemporary political uh, you know, transformations that we are going through. Um, but talking about dynastic politics, uh, it's only very recent that, you know, uh, and women in the whole scenario of domestic politics, it's only very recent that we've seen women being elected to high offices in Nepal. This is, you know, after 2006 and in the process of you know, we've spent almost we spent almost a decade in promulgating in, in drafting constitution, and um, before that it was just the uh, I think the Nepali Congress where where we could talk about you know the Goirala family, a powerful family running uh, a party, but um, talking specifically about women, the interesting point it's a very interesting question for me because um, in the early years of you know being. Uh, uh, in overgown politics, because my parents were both uh, at the forefront of the Maoist movement. One of the very first questions I was asked uh, in a TV uh, talk program was about domestic politics. As I was preparing myself to uh, contest elections in the uh, university, you know, students' union elections, and I was asked if, you know, if um, especially the youth are going to um, tolerate any sort of domestic politics now on. Henceforth. And I was like, no, absolutely not, because uh, we've just had fought a very fierce struggle against monarchy uh, and against any all sorts of feudal um, elements and structures that have governed us. But, uh, you know, almost a decade and a half later, what I see right now is exactly where, you know, you've raised your question about, um, uh, you know, women. Uh, who have you know uh, become prominent in political uh, space? Um, they're largely, uh, sadly, largely uh, uh, you know they belong to political families, their wives, their daughters, siblings at times. And and although our new constitution is celebrated for being very inclusive and for being relatively very progressive compared to other you know other countries um, because constitutionally it's mandatory to have at least 33% and, and we have a parallel electoral system of first past the post as well as proportional representation. So even if you don't, uh, you know, fulfill uh, the representation through first past the post, you have to do it through the proportional representation system. So uh, there are a lot of women that uh, you, political parties are compelled to, uh, to, you know, make entry for them in the uh, house. However, the complaint, the general the general perception, and it's a reality that um, it's mostly uh, women who are close uh, to family, to political families, or, or um, uh, you know, be belong to financially, uh, financially, um, you know, uh, 
economic powerhouses. So that's the problem. And I think, you know, just stating this problem is not enough for me because I, you know, soon enough, I may also be accused. I, I am also politically active. I belong to a political family. So I am more interested about why it happens. Why does it happen in Nepal? I don't know if I can generalize it at the regional level. I don't have enough knowledge. But I think in a country like Nepal where, um, you know, the institutions are still so weak and, and for a woman to uh, enter into politics and more so to sustain herself, to sustain herself in politics is uh, there's so many hindrances and, and, and for the lack of mechanism, institutional structures, uh, you know, the family itself becomes a very powerful structure. Uh, for, you know, for, for a woman to sustain herself in politics. And I think that is one of the reasons why uh, not only at the higher level, even at the lower level, because only recently have we had local elections where almost like more than 40 percent um, elected uh, people are women. And, and even there, even their researches that have been conducted reveal that most of them uh, belong, most of the women candidates belong to uh, families with a political background. Why does it happen? It's because of these, you know, you know even the material conditions are so poor, uh, you know, concerns of livelihood uh, and all of that. I think if we don't concentrate on creating mechanisms and not just formal political uh, institutions, you know, there are so many informal uh, institutions at work in a country like ours, uh, like caste, like, like family, uh, joint family, you know, marriage, uh, and all these informal institutions are at play, which uh, women, it, it's totally very different for women to um, sustain herself in politics. And I think that explains why, um, why what, that explains the, you know, the structural factors that perpetuate um, dynastic politics. And, and if we don't correct that, uh, Nepal is soon also, I think, going to follow the footsteps, uh, not in the positive sense, uh, like the other countries. And I, and I, and I hope that um, being sensitive to these issues and these questions are going to, you know, uh, pave the way forward for us. Uh, thanks, Manushi. And, you know, I'd like to reverse the round of questions, the next round, actually starting again with you, because you've raised really what my next question was in terms of uh, when we look at women in politics, we essentially talk about women coming into public life, claiming spaces in public, speaking out, you know, taking the stage, so to speak. So in Nepal, when we saw 10 years, and this figure is uh, disputed in terms of how many women uh, were part of the PLA. There are some figures which say 40 percent, 30 percent, you know, of the Maoist army were women, and a lot of them were Dalit women or women from indigenous communities or oppressed communities, and they got a chance to get out of those kind of oppressive structures and come into the army. Uh, there was some, uh, you know, talk also when they were integrating the army with the Nepal army about how more women were left out of the integration process, even in the army. So when you have had uh, an example, which is so recent, it's hardly 10 or 15 years old, uh, of women in public life out there, leaving their families behind. And we hear so many stories of, you know, women just in such hardship 
uh, actually joining the army and staying there. So what happened after that? I mean, how do you analyze? So there was this huge public uh, presence of women, very, very active. So what happened after 2006? And this question I'm going to ask uh, the rest of the speakers, because each of you have sort of, in a way, witnessed uh, very, uh, you know, strong and huge upheavals, uh, whether, uh, so I'll, I'll frame the question for each speaker, but Manushi, if you could respond to this about, you know, why the public uh, sphere, why, why did that not translate into the political sphere? Uh, that's a very important question. Um, you know, it just, it didn't happen only after 2006. Particularly, I mean, because I myself was involved in the movement, so many of my friends were, many of them have been left behind, they're, they're sadly nowhere in the picture today. Um, it was even before that, within the Maoist party, and this was hardly raised, you know, only, there were only a handful of people who, who were raising these questions, but, but the reality was that there was an impressive, um, astonishingly high participation of women at the lower ranks of the party, even the you know PLA uh, and other front frontal organizations. But but the ratio dropped sharply as you moved up the ladder. So you know if you went on to the central committee uh, or even the Politburo, uh, it, it was like not even I think five percent in the beginning. Yeah. And it never went beyond, I think, 15% or anything. So uh, the problem was then and there that, you know, you could, you could even question whether women's participation was uh, given a, a substantive worth or was it, you know, um, really numerically, you know, um, presence? Was it just a numerical presence? I would obviously argue that it was not only a numerical uh, presence. Women uh, contributed in terms of, you know, uh, even in ideological debates and discussions, they contributed. Um, although in documentations, it's only uh, about their role in the People's Liberation Army, which is also equally very important. But um, after 2006, I think because we did not raise these questions in time, because the party did not uh, create uh, enough mechanisms to um, sustain uh, women in, in, in political uh, organizations. And, and before 2006, you know, it, the, the structure of the party was such that everybody was uh, whole timer based, as they called it. So everybody was sharing the resources that was available together. But after 2006 in overground politics, when it transitioned to uh, the so-called peace process, where uh, leaders started becoming more centralized in uh, you know, the urban areas, especially Kathmandu, and they became, uh, all of them at once became busy in constitution making. I mean, the delegation of tasks was uh, carried out in a very uh, haphazard manner. So nobody really cared about what happened to the Dalits, what happened to women. And, and slowly as the you know, movement uh, kind of started making compromises, uh, as the dilution of its ideals and programs started taking place, uh, the ones who were really affected by this all was uh, mostly women. And, and that was because, um, as I said, in the beginning, it was sharing of resources. It was sharing of all the pains and gain, gains together. But 
later on, uh, women were once again pushed back to uh, just performing their roles as mothers, as wives, um, and, and this is at the lower ranks. I, at the higher ranks, women leaders who were wives of powerful politicians still were able to you know, remain active in politics. And that's what we see even today in traditional parties, as well as uh, the leaders who come from a Maoist background, that most of the high ranking women leaders are mostly wives and now uh, daughters. But, you know, um, at the lower ranks, it's mostly women comrades now uh, have started looking for jobs to sustain uh, the activism of their husbands. So mostly the husbands are still in politics and wives are not. And so we have this discussion even at my, uh, in my family at home, where, you know, my husband also, uh, he was a student activist. And I, and we keep telling each other that, you know, had I not belonged to a political family, perhaps I would have, you know, had to uh, perform full-time job right now. I'm just a part-time teacher, but, you know, our roles would have been reversed, you know? So I have that privilege because I belong to a political family. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not absolutely incorrect to belong to a political, it's not wrong to belong to a political family and want to be active in politics. Uh, but, you know, just leaving it to good intentions by saying that, oh, my parents have good intentions. I am very well intentioned. Uh, you know, I'm righteous about politics and everything. But that's the problem, you know, you, you can't leave it to just intentions. And, and if you don't, if you're not conscious of what, what, what uh, you know, sustains your privileges, uh, of whether there's a hereditary entitlement, you know, towards your understanding of using power and uh, political resources or, or even centralizing it, um, not only in politics, even in, even in the economy in Nepal, uh, I don't know if what's the scenario in other countries, but in Nepal, it's not just politics, you know, even in the economy. Um, and it, 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 there is chronism and, and culturally also there is this um, hereditary caste-based uh, occupations that you follow. So um, I think that's what uh, I would say to your question that what has happened is we have made these important interventions at the constitutional level, you know, at, at the level of making uh, democratic institutions and provisions, but there are many gaps, many gaps within the constitution itself and major, major um, challenges when it comes to implementation. Yeah. Thanks, Manushi. But, you know, I think Nepal is one of the few countries in the region, or probably the only one, where youth are really youth. In India, you have youth Congress leaders who are 52 years old. So I think there's hope for Nepal still. There's a long way to go, but uh, there's so much energy actually, you know, and I think that's what's exciting. So if I could call upon Hamida again to address this question about, you know, women active uh, in politics of, I don't know whether you'd call it, uh, it won't be parliamentary politics, but the language movement and the freedom struggle uh, after which, again, they are sidelined and uh, what happens? What happens to them, really? And was it, I mean, we've all heard so much about Mujibur Rahman and, you know, slotting women uh, as Biranganas and so on, and, you know, that having its own impact. So how would you analyze the, practically the disappearance of 
the large mass of political women being then represented by these one or two elite women from uh, you know parties well i think uh, if you look at our political system is very hierarchical and one looks up to the one leader or maybe two or three leaders and we follow whatever they have to say and i think also particularly in the subsequent history of bangladesh if you have the country politically divided between two major parties and and there's an ongoing conflict between them then whoever and i think this relates not only to women but to the men in the, these parties as well they then become total loyalists to one particular ideology or particular leader in fact and i think that is particularly so um, especially so in the case of women who don't have a constituency of their own making as we've discussed is you know the a hierarchical pattern also extends to the families so, of who's your family in some cases the men also in that situation because they're there because of some their father was there or their mother or whoever it was was there um but also i think um, the importance of the kinship culture in bangladesh and i think it's true in the other southeast asian countries as well that you relate to people like the, the formation of these political parties is also based to some extent on your neighborhood contacts and even if you look at the mohila parishad which has uh, which has uh, branches in practically all the districts in bangladesh but mohila parishad was formed initially by the communist party and then they become uh, more active on the women's front but if you look at their formation you have other women who are coming in from either related families or related political parties and similarly within the awami league or the other party you have a certain kinship culture developing and i think this is where a woman also features as uh, you know not on her, in her own right as uh, manushi was just saying but also because she's part of a, another sort of uh, historical thing and if you mention you know the women's act- activism is still there i think but for instance um, the activism seems to be much more marked in amongst the women activists who are outside the formal political parties but in their interaction with women or informal caucuses within political parties so for instance recently we've had this um, example i can give you is that we've had a um, sort of a, um, a lot of publicity particularly in the media about frequency of rapes and so all of us of course are very agitated about this getting together having meetings and so on and we drafted it uh, several organizations got together and drafted a 10 point reform agenda for what it's but before we could you know even approach people within the parliament say this or we did try to approach them but they'd already decided that no what we want is to impress people that the both members of parliament decided whether they wanted to impress people with what they were doing so immediately within two days they brought out a, 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 a an amendment to the law uh, saying that uh, to, to mentioning death penalty which none of us wanted but having done that what we found that everybody particularly the women in parliament who already discussed with us about what is the necessity for a different kind of reform law were already you know supporting the death penalty because that had been decided somewhere on top and the reason that it had been decided in that way was because it it looks good 
it makes news, whereas what we were suggesting would not have made news. So I think there is this tendency to build up uh, relationships within your own political grouping. And that's one way of stepping on, stepping ahead, as it were. And so, but then I suppose the women in parliament who, um, or we should also look at women in local government because that's probably a more important focus for them, is that how they relate to people outside and to the kind of issues that are raised outside the parliament. Yeah, I, I think this requires actually another, uh, you know, addressing this specifically in terms of local governance and women's role in that. But before that, I'd like to get Neelam and Ambika in also uh, to comment on this, uh, you know, seeming conundrum of large numbers of women in movements in Pakistan. It would be movements against martial law or the, you know, uh, religious ordinances and so on. I mean, women were literally flowing onto the streets and so active. So was that, again, an issue of women in the women's movement not going into politics? Or what was this large mobilization about, which did not then see a lot of women in parliamentary politics? Yeah, I think uh, as far as movements of resistance to martial law, etc., are concerned, they were largely middle-class movements. Women from those movements went into parliamentary politics, but uh, I very few into local government. And those two were women like, again, Nafisa Shah, who came from political parties, you know, uh, whose families were from already established members in polit political parties. And it was... I think at the behest of uh, their fathers or whoever that the decision was taken. Uh, insofar as uh, women's uh, participation in larger politics, I think one could say partition was one more moment when women were active in the freedom movement, women possibly across class, but there it suffered that suffered the same uh, followed the same pattern as elsewhere once independence has been won or the immediate object achieved patriarchy resurges and women are pushed back into their conventional roles uh, as far as women in local government are concerned, we have to keep in mind that Pakistan, out of its 70 so X many years of uh, existence, uh, has been under martial law for at least 30, or I mean, of that uh, of those years, and the rest have been sort of specious democracies with the shadow of military rule somewhere hovering in the background and often not so much in the background either. So uh, women in local government, the presence has been low initially. I, I mean, I, when was the first local government election held? Uh, I think it was under Ayub Khan who started the, uh, set up the institution of basic democracies, which was an indirect form of election to ensure that he would win. And uh, subsequently, there were non-party local government elections under Zia. I think none were held under Bhutto. Uh, 
though they were planned. So that space is relatively new. Uh, women uh, traditionally followed a particular pattern. I mean, this was my experience in uh, the in the first uh, in in the eighty-eight election immediately after Zia. Uh, of women who were in local government or at some level uh, in community politics, but uh, openly saying, you know, but we do as our men, the men will have to tell us what to do kind of thing. And uh, it was a given. Uh, I think that pattern has spilt over even when uh, with the influx of, I think it was 40,000 women into local government once the uh, Musharraf raised the uh, a quota for women at local government. But I think the majority were following a similar pattern where they were re representing family interests, even if they wanted to be there on their in their own right, they were there courtesy families. Some were not even there on their, willingly or a sort of passive entrance. And it was providing a foothold to the men of the family in local government. Uh, currently, the, the, these days, but, but also there was a shift. Uh, again, there is a linkage between the women's movement, between NGOs and women in local government. Now, what this must have been a pinch of salt in the ocean given uh, our population dynamics. But uh, uh, political education programs had been undertaken, initiated by Aurat Foundation and uh, the brainchild of Shalazia and Nigar Ahmed, uh, where across party lines at a national level, uh, they were giving, uh, you know, creating awareness through political education at the community level. And this agenda or this program was then replicated by many others. It couldn't have made much of a difference given size of the population, but I think it did have an impact because a lot of women who stood for the uh, for elections for local government had come out of groups that had their political, you know, been through these political education programs. So they were more aware. But then there were others who were there because they were there. And uh, even today, these days, we are working at the, with the community women uh, and at the local government, uh, ex-local government representatives and prospective representatives, and also with community-based organizations. And uh, it's difficult. I mean, they have to push their way. At, in the local in local government, they are often it is expected their husbands will represent them. They don't even have to leave the house. Those of them who do go there don't have office space, don't have access to funds, are missed out in regular meetings. On the other hand, they have strong links with the women's women in with women's communities because women are easier talking to them and bring their problems to them. So again, there's a gap of what they can do and what they are not given the space to do. And uh, this is witnessed again and again, because they were saying we remain chotas, you know, the tea boys at uh, the chai shops in the bazaar. Uh, they are called in to 
gather people for a rally to bring in or to do other sort of uh, perform other functions but when it comes to authority or power or even a voice they are pushed aside not just by their own peers in at the local government level but even at the party level and at the party level they are more or less given instructions as to what they do and they do follow party lines though again it was interesting that uh, we were meeting local government reps from different parties in the same space they got on perfectly well they shared the same problems they shared experiences but were very careful that the meetings should be held in neutral places because they were not willing to go into each other's party spaces because of the political divides and antagonisms between different parties so there is a lot of room for improvement there to provide women with access to voice and and to resources because they know what they have to do most of them were very aware conscientized women building linkages identifying the issues of the community living the issues of the community they belong to the same areas but having no recourse to meeting those demands or responding to those voices and uh, and it was funny it, because of covid we are having a lot of our work is being done online and women don't again a question of resources women don't always have access to smartphones so the meeting was held in the office of a community based organization headed by a man who would not let this woman get get hold of the mic and kept on saying i will tell you what she wants and finally i had to yell at him and say look give her the mic and she was by the time she came on she was laughing but she was also sort of exasperated and so it is at that minute level that patriarchy speaks and patriarchy has power and it is that mindset and i think that is where we need to put in a lot of work No, absolutely. How we do, 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 do
There are Tamils and Muslims in the main parties as well, but once again, not always in like the, the you know, uh, high party positions. Um, if you look at representation of women, I think, uh, particularly the national level, you definitely have more women in the main, you know, parties rather than in the Tamil or Sinhala parties. Now, this you could say partly is because also of the armed conflict, which adversely affected the communities and made political mobilization all that difficult, etc. All that that I think partly it would be correct. But partly, I think uh, Tamil and Muslim communities are also definitely more conservative. So it will be dif more difficult for Tamil and Muslim women to come into politics. And there are various factors at play. For instance, if you are a Tamil woman, then uh, if you want to get elected, there is no way that you can be critical of the LTTE. If you are critical, then that's pretty much it. Then if you are a Muslim woman, there are certain things that you have to be careful. You cannot speak. So, for instance, there's a few years ago, not a she was not she was more like a social social activist, a Muslim woman who spoke out um, in support of uh, sex workers, rights of sex sex workers. She received death threats to the point where she had to move to another part of the country. Uh, so I think these women, because of the societies, they fail, face additional obstacles. So if you're talking about women from the conflict affected areas, uh, many of them would also be their kind of economic social capital would have been decimated. The social networks have, in a way, they have crumbled, but also reforming, but in different ways. Which So you're also seeing social change, which the community has not come to terms with, right? They're also dealing, grappling with these changing values. Um, so in that context, I think particularly within the Tamil community, what you saw is I think everyone knows the, the women combatants. Uh, LTT had a large number of women combatants. Um, and uh, following, but in, in the hierarchy, once again, within the party, of course, they did not hold uh, the, the visibly high positions. Uh, and following the end of the war, they had to revert back to, and I, I've interviewed about, I think about 50 women combatants, and they were saying things like, you know, I can't even, and one woman said she doesn't, you know, husband was disappeared. So she said um, a tree in her um, a yard, that the branches were like overgrown. So she said she just didn't think anything about it. She just stood up and started like chopping it. But the neighbors saw her and they were just like, what's going on here? Like, why is she doing this? And she said, so they found it odd. And then they start wondering, well, where is she from? This was, of course, a few years ago, just after the end of the war. Uh, because there is also, there was stigma attached to the, the combatants generally because the war ended militarily. Some of them were handed over to the military and they disappeared. Then there was surveillance monitoring of the people who were even sent to rehabilitation. Um, rehabilitation did not adhere to human rights standards. So the women, for them, you can imagine how difficult this context would be. And then to become socially active. So what we are seeing now is after that reversion back to more traditional conservative values. So for instance, um, in the North, you saw dowry became an issue again. All these things that the LTT had forcibly and through fear of violence had in a way just um, 
uh, it was just, it was not eradicated. It was just in a way uh, submerged, I suppose, for a short while, it just uh, came up again. But what we are seeing now, I think, is uh, or what we saw in the past five years also, because we had regime change and there was uh, space for civil society, there was space for dissent. We saw many more women and groups coming out. Uh, so, for instance, uh, the um, struggle to uh, for the return of land that was taken over by the military in the north, mostly women. But the women themselves face a lot of struggles at home because the husbands sometimes even use violence on them. They perpetrate violence because they, why are you going there every day? You know, you're not working. You're wasting your time going there for the protest every day for the past hundred days. Uh, but you're seeing social activism. You're seeing younger women also uh, coming forward using social media. But once again, there is a lot of backlash. A lot of sexualized uh, um, uh, cyber violence is being perpetrated. So I think, in a way, Sri Lanka is, is a, it's, it's going through a lot of um, upheavals, but women still face considerable struggles in getting from that point of social activism. Or you know, uh, we have had a, a protest by the families of the disappeared uh, for hundreds of days now. All women. All women, mothers, wives, mostly women. Uh, but to get from that point into party politics and that from the party politics to get into parliament, I think that you still need privilege, you still need, uh, you know, backing of powerful people, you still need to be someone, as it were. Thanks, uh, Ambika. I mean, that's really fascinating what you, uh, you know, even mentioned about a resurgence of uh, some of the social customs which had been uh, banned or maybe petered away under the entity like dowry and so on. And I also know that there were very stringent consequences for domestic violence, uh, you know, within that. One may or may not agree with the kinds of justice um, meted out, but well, I mean, there was a recognition that this is not okay. So that, 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 thank, thank you for that. And that actually leads me to the next question I wanted to pose to all of you. In terms of even when Kamala Harris, uh, you know, she, she was not yet elected at the time, there were a lot of discussions about, you know, is she going to be, bring a different kind of politics to the White House? I mean, is a woman there going to bring a change policy in any way? Is there going to be a difference in the way the U.S.? And the reason I guess all of us were riveted even to, a, uh, you know, elections in a country uh, nowhere near ours was simply because it does uh, matter, you know, uh, U.S. policy affects everyone, unfortunately. So that question, I think it remains to be seen whether she's going to bring any different kind of politics uh, in terms of a gender element to it. And uh, we have, uh, you know, within even in the Indian women's movement, we've questioned this whole, uh, you know, essentialism about women being kinder or less corrupt or, you know, all of these stereotypes about women. But uh, recently I came across this study during, uh, you know, the response to the coronavirus pandemic where uh, it says that the countries with the best response to the COVID-19 pandemic are led by women. So there's a study which looks at Germany under Angela Merkel, New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern, of course, Denmark's Mette Friedrichsen, Taiwan's Tsai Ling-wen, and Finland's Senna Marin. So all of these countries had a better response to 
coronavirus in terms of more humane lockdowns, lower death rates, and fewer adverse impacts of the pandemic in general. And interestingly, none of these women uh, actually belong to political dynasties. Most of them uh, have come up from the cadre. They've climbed the political ladder and they're leading and they're all elected representatives. So I was I was wondering, do we need to rethink this? Do we need to relook at and maybe come back to looking at do women have a different style of leadership and a different style of politics? And does the current mainstream political frame in all these countries allow women to anywhere exercise that different style? And would you uh, have any examples of, you know, women leaders uh, who've actually driven any different kind of change? We've we've seen those studies in India in the Panchayati Raj uh, system. It's been now 20, 25 years, so there's been time to study that uh, women leaders do tend to uh, attend more to local issues and you know issues which concern women, whether it's water, fodder, schools and health and that kind of thing. Uh, so so that, that's really at a very local governance level and we've not seen evidence of it at the higher levels in terms of any of our women politicians. So, uh, so I, I'd really like you to comment on this in terms of style of politics and whether there are examples and whether there is hope and what what does it need for women's style to uh, flourish in a way. So uh, maybe we can go in the same order uh, again, Manashi first. As you yourself said, you know, about essentializing uh, women's roles and their traits, I, I would also, uh, I, I would tend to think that um, you know, as much as I would like to be very happy and, and hopeful about Kamala Harris or any you know, woman leader rising to prominence, but I'm also skeptical if there is something very inherently um, good and, and um, hopeful about having women in these positions. My, my key concern would be uh, what is the politics that they represent, you know, rather than just their style of functioning because I think one determines the other as well. If we just talk about the style itself, I would uh, focus more on whether, um, you know, I, I think I would talk more about style if, if I knew that women in Nepal were um, allowed to govern or, or you know, uh, perform independently, you know, think and act independently without being controlled by men in their party or in their family. But that apart, I think it's it's what politics do you bring to the table? What agenda uh, do you uh, bring and, and uh, who do you represent? So I think for any woman leader, uh, uh, you know, I would judge based on that. Because in Nepal, you know, we've had, we have a, a president, the first president, um, the second president of Nepal who is a woman, the first ever woman to be a president. We've also had uh, at one point key, you know, constitutional um, positions being filled by uh, women, the speaker, uh, you know, um, the, uh, the chief justice and who not. But uh, when we talk about the president, especially in the 
current current scenario uh, it's been a big disappointment for us you know she she has uh, uh, approved uh, the unconstitutional dissolution of the house of representatives and has issued several other controversial uh, ordinances and um, and even at the local level the local government and the provincial level where i'm more hopeful about you know the performances of women leaders um but there have been studies uh, being conducted and my own personal experience of you know talking with them is that um, they've largely been reduced to these uh, subsidiary uh, positions you know this the the uh, not the mayors but the you know those sub mayors or uh, you know the deputy mayors or the deputy heads of uh, bodies and ward levels and um, as as sera um, tamang who uh, was brilliantly put Uh, in a, in an article she's talked about she's titled it they've given us the chair but um, bound our hands and feet so you know even when women really want to perform uh, what are the hindrances and and it's not just i think patriarchy in 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 a country like nepal there are like layers and layers of um, hierarchies and obstacles that are intersectional in nature so uh, uh, you know a woman who belongs to a khas area community will bring something different to the table as opposed to a dalit woman or a, a woman from a janjati background i think she's going to bring something different uh, in her you know uh, political um, uh, tasks so i think um, there could be many examples you know but uh, as long as there are these visible and invisible structures that hinder uh, you know that present uh, themselves as hindrances in every step uh, for political for women politicians um i can't say with confidence that you know women are going to bring change uh, in the positive sense by by the fact that they are just you know women because even our president um she hardly had any response uh, of empathy or anything during the corona you know covid-19 crisis in nepal so what does that say in comparison to you know say jacinda ardern or other women leaders so i think that's that would be my response i would focus on the politics that they represent yeah, yeah. thank th- thanks manushi hamida would you like to respond to this about uh, you know women's style of functioning and politics as uh, manushi very rightly pointed out in terms of them making a different kind of impact um I'm not really sure that they do because I think the um, those of us who are outside politics, political parties, function a different way. I think we feel freer to speak and do what we want to do. There's fewer restrictions and fewer rules on us. Whereas I find the political system in our country is so hierarchical that you have to you join. It's like you have to. Uh, promise to obey and so on and so forth yeah you know, it's very difficult to move out of that and so if you want something done for instance i mean recently there have been incidents um well the incidents of rape that i talked about but women in parliament didn't raise any of these issues in parliament itself also although it was a session we have a speaker who's a woman but she didn't raise it either she didn't talk about it in any way whereas it was we were talking about it outside so i think that too many you know um, nuts and bolts within a political party and they all lead in a very hierarchical direction um, that's why i think it's probably a little freer 
where the local politics are concerned. We are not too familiar with that. But in Bangladesh, for instance, we have a lot of other community organizations. And the way this is going now is that for community organizations, whether they're all female or mixed or whatever they are, their tendency to interact with people, uh, with the political forces, and to make them try and understand what are the issues. And I think this is particularly, say, in the case of the Chittagong Hill tracks, where people tend to talk about it outside, but not inside Parliament. Yeah, I mean, th these are very, uh, I think, volatile issues, which are cross uh, gender, I guess, and cross party. Mm -hmm. uh, Neelam, would you like to respond to that in terms of looking at... Yeah, I agree. With, I mean, uh, Hamida has made a very interesting point, but uh, to go back to your uh, women nicer, uh, I am very wary of essentialisms. I think whether it's Kamala Harris or whether it was Obama, they have to follow their, the policies of their country. And those are neoliberal policies, neo, you know, and uh, they will start wars, they will be violent, they will be oppressive, they will be exploitative as far as the rest of the world is concerned. And I think being female or black has nothing to do with it. Uh, the other thing about different style of politics and going back to what Amida was also saying, there's also the politics of place and location and identity. Uh, it was more difficult for Benazir to push for progressive change than for a male, more right-wing counterpart, because she already carried with her the <coughs> stigma or burden <coughs> of being a woman, belonging to a party which had at least a left-wing aura attached to it, whether it was there in, in, in real, reality or not is another matter. But it was a, a, sort of a modern, in the negative sense, party, as seen by the public in Zia's time, post-Zia Pakistan. So similarly, for People's Party, it was more difficult. For instance, People, People's Party could not have switched the Friday holiday back to Sunday. It would have been called an atheistic society because one of the things they did was to was to popularize the meaning of the word secular as atheistic. So there's a negative knee-jerk reaction to it. But Nawaz Sharif did. I mean, it was no problem. It it happened with great ease, and we came back to Sunday. So it is all these politics also at work. So it is difficult to say what where the difference would be, because as Hamida has said, we, women in politics are bound by party lines, by party political hierarchies, and behind them there are then the family hierarchies and all, all that baggage as well. So no, I would not essentialize on that, but as you say, it is outside formal structures that perhaps because of uh, and where they come from and perhaps because through discussions, through understanding, through awareness, there may be a greater uh, sensitivity to what are people's issues, to, to what, are, what is the humane aspect of things than to the norm which is pretty brutal. 
when we look at our stereotypes and our caste class divisions and all that and uh, there you will find women as hidebound about caste and class as uh, your most misogynistic of men oh yes i mean yeah i mean and and we've also seen that uh, you know in terms of the right wing politics it's the right wing parties in india i'm not so sure about uh, pakistan or bangladesh which have a higher representation of women actually you know in terms of uh, even fielding women candidates it's the bjp who's fielded more women candidates always so uh, anyway ambika would you like to uh, respond to this about uh, you know a gendered politics is is there any such thing um it's an interesting question because a question about you know is it enough to have women there or do they need to have a certain kind of politics uh that discussion is is uh, very actively going on in sri lanka now because of the recent elections we had a woman who was a human rights activist and lawyer who joined a political party that is uh, headed by a person accused including accused by the united nations and the security the special representative on children in armed conflict as well as someone who has alleged to have committed a grave human rights and humanitarian law violations so then in within the within the women's uh, groups itself there was a lot of conflict and a lot of conversation because should we support this woman or not because they had a campaign which said vote for a woman so then women themselves started challenging this and said but we don't want to vote for her she doesn't stand for our values she's supporting a party that is accused of human rights grave human rights violations then we got into a conversation in sri lanka where a, a woman parliamentarian just a couple of months ago said that national security is more important than sanitary napkins which caused this huge uproar and then so everyone's like women you know need to be feminist so then the conversation was do you need representation for representation sake or do you need the women to have a certain kind of politics i personally think you know when we say we need ethnic representation you know religious representation what not we don't talk about their politics so i think we do need to have representation for representation sake but i personally and i would encourage others to also demand those women to have a certain kind of politics but i don't think we should prevent their entry into politics because of the kind of politics that you know we should challenge it definitely um so i think and also to say how deeply ingrained this is is recently just yesterday a study was launched in sri lanka uh interviews uh, with women politicians at the local government level two thirds of them said politics is more suited for men than women there's one woman who said uh, you know if a woman is in politics she must know to get those positions within the party you can't blame the men for not giving them to her she must know how to get them then there was a seasoned 60 year old woman politician who had said uh men uh, you know they use their muscle in politics so what we must do is we must find something else that is unique to ourselves and use that so once again the problem is using muscle is not a problem we are not challenging the fundamental structural systemic you know problems or the problems with our values and the kind of politics we practice so as i said these women have kind of become uh, foot soldiers of patriarchy 
Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think this is again at all levels where sexism is so, so very strong in terms of whatever women do, it's because they are women, whatever bad they do, and whatever good they do is because they're good politicians. So, I mean, you can never win, really. That, that, you, you, you just can't win. So uh, we're, uh, you know, getting a few questions. Maybe we can take these questions. And if there's a lull in the questions, maybe uh, you can add uh, any points that you'd like to. So there's one question for uh, Neelam. Uh, Neelam, how do you explain Benazir being supported as the heir when she had a brother who was also involved in politics? Uh, in a patriarchal society, was this not a break from tradition? Yeah, I suppose you could say it was a break from tradition, but Bhutto had named her his political heir. Maybe she was the eldest child. Uh, you know, Bhutto died pretty young when the children were not that old. Perhaps as the eldest child with a promise, he felt that she could represent him. But certainly when she came into power or after his death, the brothers had were not in the, in the country. They, they left earlier. They were involved in a different kind of politics. And uh, she came to represent him. And then when she was in exile also, she was the one who came back first. And uh, I mean, I'm not, not just thinking aloud. Uh, it was amazing the reception she got. And uh, she was there as Putto's daughter, the surrogate of the man they had lost, perhaps with a lot of guilt for his hanging also. And she sort of never lost that space. And later when Murtada did sort of emerge as a possible uh, contender for power, I don't think he could dislodge her, not really. Because, uh, I mean, th th those were the days one was attending their rallies and their meetings and things. And he did not have the ability to attract the same kind of crowd. I think by that, by the time he came back, she had captured the public imagination. And uh, it was more than just as a political person. There was an iconic quality that she, uh, status that she had attained, uh, where much was forgiven her. Many, I mean, her lapses, her shortfalls were criticized. But uh, despite that, her constituency remained. And I think it is sort of somewhere reflected in the fact that, though that maybe that has something to do with South Asian culture, that her grave is now a place of pilgrimage also. Maybe an honor conferred by, by her assassination. Though, and, and the rumors of her having done away with the brother and so on, that has not affected her popularity. Well, the rumors were there, but also alongside those rumors, A, they were not proved, just as Benazir's, it hasn't been discovered who killed her, uh, though there are many rumors. But uh, there was also this uh, rumor going around that the... Uh, the tension was between Murtaza and Zardari and not so much between Benazir and Murtaza. I mean, I don't know. I have no information, really. I'm sort of just going on things I've heard. 
So I I wouldn't like to stay state definitively. It could be this or it could be that. But uh, again, if you look at it, it seems to be a kind of a, a battle for power between two males. Or maybe it wasn't. I mean, I I I don't know enough or don't have enough information to be able to comment. Uh, there are a couple of questions for everyone. I'll read out both, and uh, if you can respond to both, uh, whoever would like to, or all of you. Uh, one is, how many male politicians are from political families uh, and with political lineage? I would think that almost half of parliament are from political families and local power structures. Yeah. That's one. Uh, another question is, do you think that our education systems play a role in instilling or not instilling leadership skills in women? So the, these two questions, and then we can go on. So about political lineage itself, that even men, I think all of you have commented, but if you have any uh, data perhaps of how many men, uh, male politicians are from political families or political lineage in the, your context. And the other question about education, is that an issue? And, and I would add to that, if it is an issue, why is it not an issue for men? I think, can anyone answer? I, I mean, I don't have the data, but I think a large number of men in politics are from political families or from economically very strong families who have entered politics and set up their own uh, uh, sort of uh, made a place for themselves and maybe uh, initiated continuities also, I can't say. But uh, as far as education is concerned, what, I mean, the Pakistani education system is uh, not geared to engender leadership qualities in anybody, certainly not in women, maybe in the army, <laughs> you know, because the valorization is of military figures, of religious figures, and of nationalist icons like Jinnah or the poet Iqbal. But... Uh, no, if anything, our education system uh, constrains women, non-Muslim minorities, other marginalized groups within the stereotypes of gender and class and caste and religion. And, and generally, it's geared to kill the mind rather than to the whole system rather than to enable it to develop. No, it's a Painful issue at the moment because our new single national curriculum is on the horizon and it's going to be horrible. I mean, if I may, about uh, Sri yeah. Lanka and the education system, as Neelan said, it is uh, even in Sri Lanka, it's constructed to kill the mind. So you're not encouraged. So it's it's uh, you're not encouraged to think critically. You cannot challenge power structures, and also the curriculum. In a sense, you know, it is uh, it can be sexist, and also there are a lot of uh, stereotypes about minorities. It's about how history is being taught. Uh, so I think generally the education system uh, just exacerbates 
the social problems we have. So that relates to both men and women. But I think it's the ingrained sexism within society that you then see within the family, the school, which uh, prevents women from assuming a leadership role. So for instance, like, you know, in the Tamil community where, uh, you know, you don't have political analysts or constitutional analysts who are men. So, for instance, there was an instance when I wrote something and I was, they were, they put me on this national list of a political party. So I, I was publishing at the time. So then the, there were lots of articles and, you know, these very vicious personal attacks that said, oh, she couldn't have written that. There's no way she could have written that. And they said uh, another well-known parliamentarian must have written it. So even the fact that you are, you are a specialist in a particular area is something that the women's knowledge and competence is something our societies are unable to acknowledge and accept. And I think that is our fundamental problem. Yeah, yeah. Manushi, you're well-placed to talk about students and education. What would you like to say about this? About the first question uh, regarding the data, I, I also don't have the exact mm -hmm. numbers. But about education, um, I think I agree with both the speakers uh, that um, uh, education uh, has the potential to to uh, do a lot for you know women and and women's ability to take leadership position but sadly in in nepal as well our education system uh, in fact uh, has only been reproducing the existing power uh, power structures and and uh, you know the exclusivity of, of uh, you know public space uh, and problematic relations caste hierarchies that exist in society so uh, there's a lot that needs to be done in that area and and in nepal uh, you you could think that why why didn't anybody particularly the uh, you know the maoists who came with so much of fervor for change and transformation why wasn't this uh, uh, why wasn't anything done in the educational front um, well actually uh, almost everything got subsumed under the uh, whole task of constitution making so everybody's focus was just on you know, drafting constitution and ensuring that the more important things like secularism, federalism, uh, et cetera, et cetera, were being uh, addressed and, and institutionalized in the new constitution. And even in terms of education, we've had the general provisions uh, which are progressive, like, you know, in terms of um, stating it as a fundamental right and everything, but the content, you know, nobody really paid attention to the curriculum and, and the content of what makes um, good uh, education uh, material. Nobody paid attention to that. And I think I have only myself uh, to criticize, you know, being part of the students' movement. It's something that we completely missed because we ourselves were so much focused on fighting the political struggle and, and not paying much attention to the educational and, and other aspects as well. But now that uh, we promulgated the constitution 2015, uh, I think now is a good time, although we're very late, to start intervening in these areas. So I think education has a very good potential, but as of now, um, it's not doing such great, uh, you know, thing for women politicians. Yeah. yeah. 
Manishi, there's a related question uh, addressed only to you, so I'll just read that out. Uh, what is Manushi's point of view on children of polit politicians in politics discouraging their parents to advance their political career? Unlike the way daughters of Nepali Congress and Communist Party of Nepal have maximized. Sorry, unlike what? I didn't get the last. Unlike one. the way daughters of Nepali Congress and Communist Party of Nepal have maximized. I guess the question means, uh, you know, uh, daughters of politicians in Nepali Congress and the uh, Communist Party have probably used uh, their parents' connection to advance. And what is your view on other parties discouraging their children from being in politics? That's what I understand from the question. Um. So, so it's the parents discouraging the children, not the children discouraging. This parents. no children, <laughs> not, not children, not wanting to take not wanting. Uh, the, the uh, advantage of their parents. Think, yeah, that's a very interesting question. Uh, yes, yes, that's very true in Nepal. Uh, uh, if you look at the top figures, yes, in Nepali Congress, you have Sujata Koirala. In in Communist Party, I think the. Uh, they're referring to uh, Prachanda's uh, family or other leaders, uh, you know, wives and whatnot. But um, about, about kids not wanting to, you know, follow the footsteps of their parents, I think that says a lot about the kind of uh, politics that their parents do. And, and not only that, the convincing capacity of their parents to uh, involve them in the kind of politics that they are leading. But that's not the only issue. I think the bigger issue in Nepal's context is because, um, because uh, the living conditions are so harsh. Uh, not everybody has, uh, so not everybody does politics out of you know, choice. For, for many, for the average people, uh, even during the People's uh, War, the Maoist People's War, uh, it was out of compulsion that uh, majority of uh, people participated in these uh, political movements. So uh, after a period of time, it's only those who have enough resources that you know they can sustain themselves in politics. So for leaders who are slightly in the lower ranks or leaders who are you know financially not well off. Um, and that would directly be related to, sadly, to their corrupt practices. Uh, I think it's very natural for them not to want their kids, you know, to again follow that very painful path of, you know, being active in politics, but, you know, having to compromise on so many other aspects of life. So, yeah. This leads us to another question that's come in, uh, which is for everyone. Uh, they ask, given the massive expenses of running election campaigns, do you think we can think of campaign finance reforms as one way to level the playing field for women politicians, as well as others from different marginalized groups? Has this come up as a serious political alternative in your countries? Uh, could we start with Hamida? Hamida, I mean, especially because there's been so much talk of corruption, uh, you know, at the level of the prime minister and it's gone to court and, you know, it, it, it's really a public issue. And yet that does not seem to affect electoral prospects. 
Yes, Lakshmi, I think we, we've talked a lot about it, uh, the corruption in, and we know that uh, everybody who gets into politics also ends up as a business person. So you wonder where it all went. But that's true. This is one of the, I think, um, obstructions to uh, decent politics, I would say, because even in a, any campaign, even publicly, you can see how much money is being spent. And it's not a question of buying votes directly, but so many different institutional uh, active and sort of uh, drawing whatever they can, uh, whether it's administration or whether it's a law and uh, law enforcement mechanisms, and of course, ordinary community people. So it, of course, that, that is, I think, a hindrance to any um, honest way to be elected. And in, the, this is, in this case particularly, I think uh, women are certainly two steps behind because whereas the men are earning money or they've been in business and as, they've been in politics and as a result of being in politics, they made enough money or have uh, started their own businesses. So they do have that kind of money. Uh, whereas women, when they're into politics, they're getting in for the first time. Not that they're averse to these practices I feel that whether it's a woman or a man in politics, one way of get in, getting in is actually to use whatever resources that are available to you. And in these cases, I think the party also makes resources available. The various other institutions make resources available because they, they can then use you for whatever purpose they have. And it's um, and I think it's also, if you're new in politics, then it's more difficult for you to use these methods, whereas you've been in it or your family has been in it, then you know who's who and you can, it's easier to access a very simple proposition. Um, so I think certainly there's need for reform, but how do you do it? Uh, can you just wipe out a whole slate and clean it up and do it all over again? Because the kind of uh, money that we saw that was being spent, say, in the American election recently, or various other countries, or even in India, in your last election, you know, people are giving statistics in the media. And that doesn't seem to suggest that there was any step back on this. But I think we need, really need to consider how to change this. And I think um, I'm always harping on the local communities, but I think one way to start is probably in the local elections where there is not that much uh, possibility of making money as there is in, the, in national parliaments. So I, th I, I would personally feel that one should start at that level and work on a system where citizens are more active in monitoring what's happening and making whatever find, making their findings more public. Yeah, because a lot of the reform at the higher levels is just another way disguised to make more money. In India, this whole issue of electoral bonds and so on is yet another uh, ruse in a way. So I guess the change does have to come from below. Uh, uh, what about the other speakers? Would you like to comment on this about, uh, you know, the money used for election campaigns? And has there been any attempt at reform or changing the system? Do you know of any examples? Personal experience is uh, uh, when I resigned from the Human Rights Commission of Sri Lanka, the uh, pre-largest, uh, the general election that took place uh, last year, I was asked to contest for the parliamentary elections. So one of the reasons I refused, there were many, but one of the main reasons that I refused was, I'm like, how am I going to possibly raise this money? And as someone who's not been in politics, 
uh, and also whoever was would be you know was willing to give the funds i i wasn't sure that i really wanted to take those funds because then you you cannot hold on to your positions and you in a way become tainted and you become part of the process um in sri lanka it is well known that uh, many of the big businesses they fund all parties so they're hedging their bets and covering their bases so that whoever comes into power they'll be okay uh the positive thing we have seen is that after the last general elections now there is actually conversation to some extent about campaign financing and whether we need to bring in laws uh that's a positive that people are actually thinking uh, about it but also in sri lanka the problem with um, national level politics or parliamentary politics is the way the 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 electoral you know district is structured so you would have to compete with people from your your own party and you also have to cover large physical areas which means that's why you need more money so for us i think for women it would be much easier to start at the local government level they would be more successful than at the national level taking these practicalities into account yeah uh would you like to comment actually we are running out of time and there are some more questions but manushi very quickly i will like just briefly yeah. uh, say that uh, in nepal at least uh, our party has tried to propose an alternative um it's uh, debatable it's still under discussion um of having a directly elected executive and a fully proportionally uh, uh, elected um, legislature so uh, so you know all the uh, members of parliaments don't have to bear the individual cost uh, so you vote for a particular party and only the executive uh, officers are you know directly elected um this does not r- resolve the issue at the local level how do you tackle you know this issue of this this vicious circle of taking funds or you know from from a, from organizations or agencies and then you know you have to carry their agenda uh, and and you get entrapped in that whole thing but also ability as a woman to uh, you know conduct those tasks of raising funds so um, we also have proposed that uh, uh, you know the state uh, has to bear the cost i i think in some countries uh, it's already being <clears throat> practiced where uh you know minimal allocation of resources is you know there for uh, those willing to contest especially for women so i think that is one thing that uh, we could do yeah yeah and some countries like india technically there's a cap also on expenses during elections not that there aren't ways it's circumvented i mean it's it's uh, it's india after all so uh actually there's a question uh addressed to everyone but a specific one for neelam so maybe neelam you can answer your specific question and then get on to the general one so the specific one for neelam is uh, how do you think feminist movements in pakistan have impacted or permeated into public policy that's your question and uh, for everyone according to the un report from a few years ago on average women hold only 7% of ministerial positions and 15% in national parliaments in the region what are your thoughts on the gender quotas that have been introduced to increase female political participation 
Yeah, so Neelam, do you want to take your question and then okay. the other? Uh, well, there has been an impact of uh, the women's movement on policy. I mean, the increase in women's representation in parliament is one example. I mean, I'm not saying it was the only factor, but I think it was a major factor, the work done by the women's movement in terms of consultations and discussions and working out how to go about it and then holding discussions uh, with the bureaucrats, etc., cetera, and, and, and applying the pressure. Similarly, uh, many of the laws that have the proactive laws like the uh, I don't have them in front of me at the moment, but laws dealing to honor killing, to acid throwing, to uh, prevention of, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, bad practices. I mean, you know, like exchange marriage and uh, marriage to the Quran to save the property from going to the girl, etc., etc. Those have been initiated by women, pushed by women, outside and then inside parliament. Uh, so, I I mean, we've not had as much impact as we would like on policy, but there is a con constant endeavor to push for change, uh, whether it's by going through the law courts, whether by direct pressure through parliament, or uh, again, through overall uh, awareness raising on issues at the public level. But I mean, as I said, not enough as much impact as we would like, but I think to some extent, yes. Okay. And the general question about quotas, do you think they're effective and what's your thoughts about it? Gender quotas in par for parliament? I think quotas have helped because without quotas, given the patriarchal mindset, the family hierarchies, other considerations, Few women would, and, and women's lack of resources. Women have don't, don't have the money to fight elections unless they have family support. But once the quota is there and the space is there, and then because male parliamentarians also see that it's one way of getting their foot into the door, you know, a little more space over there, they then also support women, whether then the other, it's, it's another matter that once in parliament, women have tended to make a space for themselves, which is separate from that of their families, not everybody, but by and large. And in a recent study undertaken by Aisha Khan and Sana Nakwi, they interviewed women. And while women, one of the comments or concerns is that women on, uh, on who come in through quota, don't are not directly responsible to their constituencies, but to the families or the parties who, who brought them in. Uh, the women themselves felt they were answer, answerable to their notional constituencies and not to the parties or the men who had facilitated their, who had nominated them. So, what was the question? No, how effective quotas are that? Yeah, the... I think quotas are effective because without the quotas, there is no way that women would have even that much of an inroad into parliament or into local government as, as the, has been enabled by the quota. And even with the quota, I mean, Musharraf uh, gave the 17%, the 33% uh, 
initially in 2002 uh, uh, to 2000 to 2002 and then arbitrarily took it back have uh, reduced it probably through because of backlash from the more conservative elements and it it does impact at the moment there are fewer women uh, who are active in politics because again of party politics so you do need quotas uh, would anyone else like to come in on this yeah on quotas yeah lakshmi i would like to say that yeah. um, i think um, quotas might be necessary because otherwise communities or groups are being excluded in order to include make it more inclusive perhaps we need to have quotas but we need to have quotas in such a way that women of different classes and different communities can be able to contest whether it's women or men so that chakmas or shantas or dalits can also have an opportunity and it's not just middle class women or business men's wives who are doing this and i think if we have quotas it should be we should also look at how that quotas does not mean a selection process it should be a popularly elected process so that women are then responsible the women who are elected are then responsible to groups of others who vote for them yeah 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 amrika uh, yes in sri lanka we've actually had a long struggle asking for quotas and we finally got 25% quotas at the local government level but even then even while implementing it hasn't been smooth because the the excuse that the party leaders gave at the times that even when we have quotas we can't find women so now we're afraid that what's going to happen is that the quota will once again you know when we move towards the next election we have to protect the quota because it has seen an increased number of women going in and yes many of them are struggling but many of them are also holding their own so i think it has had some impact uh, but for us that's it's going to be a battle and a struggle to even hold on to that uh manashi yeah i i feel that uh, quotas are important and are effective especially you know because for women um there are so many uh, distractions apart from of course the lack of you know all sorts of resources um it's very difficult uh, to uh, uh, you know remain focused in politics uh, despite your desire and uh, ability to want to perform so i think quotas are very important and also important to uh, uh, consider uh, that you know we, we should not treat women as a homogenous category as somebody already mm-hmm. stated but uh, yeah i am all for uh, fully uh, proportional representation not only representation but proportional uh, so because you know in a country like ours where there's been very disproportionate consumption and allocation of political resources economic and even cultural resources i think quotas are important but not also not the only solution there are so many other things that you would need to do but if you want to intervene at an institutional uh, level uh, in terms of building mechanisms to ensure uh, women's uh, participation then quotas are a must yeah uh thank you and uh, i i think this is the discussion also in india in terms of you know going beyond the women's reservation bill in india it's only 33% reservation but there's been such a backlash uh such hostility to the very idea itself and you know the 
whole uh, principle of representation is being, I would say, misused to stall the bill, saying that just having a quota is going to, you know, women's quota will bring in more elite women or upper caste women. And therefore, we should not have quota. But the point being, therefore, we should try and see how to have more representative uh, quotas. But again, it, it, it's just languishing this bill. And India has only 13% uh, women in parliament. But I'd just like to share one interesting fact here that, uh, you know, in the 2019 general election in India, only 9% of the candidates were women. But 14% of those who were elected were women, which means that fewer women were put up, but more women won. So obviously, there's an issue here also at the level of the political parties and uh, their commitment to fielding women. And therefore, then the discussion needs to go to looking at maybe not quotas within political parties, whether they'd be open to that is a different question. But how does one increase women's representation uh, within political parties itself? Uh, so, you know, even then being fielded on general seats because win winability factor is uh, very high in India. And uh, I only have figures for India where there is no large gender gap in the electorate. Equal numbers of men and women go out to vote. Uh, unlike the US uh, where uh, women are uh, fewer in number in terms of the electorate. So these are questions which actually need a much uh, more systemic change as everybody has been speaking. And I, I, I just wrap up after this last question, which was addressed to me about, uh, you know, do I see uh, more possibilities of women leaders coming up in regional parties or regional um, elections in India? And, you know, th there are many, very many prominent women, whether it's Mayavati or Mamata Banerjee or Jailalita and so on. But again, like we've been talking for the past couple of hours, this hasn't translated into either more gender just policies or even more policies of social justice. They've replicated the way in which men uh, function. So it, it, it does not uh, really matter in terms of whether they are women or men. In terms of regional politics playing a part in India, that, that's definitely so. Uh, again, all of these women have risen within their parties uh, because of mentors. They all happen to be unmarried. Again, it's worth studying whether this is a coincidence or not. But uh, they have had strong male mentors within the party who've uh, sort of, uh, you know, spotlighted their talent when they were young and, uh, you know, groomed them, so to speak. But in terms of the nature of politics, uh, it does not leave much. In fact, there's been so much criticism of the authoritarianism of uh, Jailalita, for example, or Mayavati, for example. So it, 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 it again goes back to the question of, uh, you know, female essentialism and whether that's going to make a difference. And I think we can all conclude that just in and of itself, it's not going to be transformatory to have uh, more women in politics. So I'd like to end over here and thank you all uh, speakers. It's been fantastic. Uh, thank you all the listeners uh, for sticking it out on a Sunday afternoon. It's been really exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, hi. Uh, no, thank you, everyone. I know it was an amazing discussion. I just wanted to end by reminding everyone of Himal's membership program, which 
you can join by going to himalmag.com and uh, you know support our work and hopefully we can have more of these conversations in the future um and uh, yeah thanks everyone again and lakshmi also for expertly guiding our conversation today so uh, thanks everyone